The name of this morning's message is called Shipwreck with a question mark. The anchor holds. The Lord told me just to, to bring this subject up of shipwreck. And so I went to, to study out where it, sh- it shows up in Scripture. And it shows up in 1 Timothy 1, 18, verses 18 through 20. And in the NIV it says this, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. There we go. Hello. (laughs) Um, With the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, one of the first things you do when you want to know what a particular scripture means is you, you do word studies. What do these words mean exactly? Sometimes that's all that you really uh, have to do to find out what is the, the theme of that particular scripture. So that's exactly what I did. When I looked up the word shipwreck, because what I've often heard people say is, oh, that person has shipwrecked their faith. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, they're going to hell. They are? (laughs) How did that happen? You see, if you think about what a shipwreck is, um, you set out to sail. You remember Gilligan's Island, anybody? (laughs) You set out to sail, to go to a certain place for a certain amount of time, and you have a certain destination. And if something happens on the way, if there's a storm that blows you off course and you run aground, you are called shipwrecked. Some have taken that metaphor to mean, well, that means you started out with Christ, a storm came along, blew you off course, and stranded you on a desert island somewhere where you will never be able to return to your destination. But that's not what a shipwreck is. <laughs> now, it, most people do not end up like at Gilligan's Island. They don't stay there forever. <laughs> now, a shipwreck can be just that, running aground, getting off course. Uh, your, your vessel falling apart. And it can also mean stranded. It means you end up in a place you didn't really plan on being. For an, a certain amount of time, you didn't know you were going to be there. Sort of like Gilligan's Island. But when I thought, you know, that doesn't really help me with understanding this particular scripture. Because I can see their point. Maybe somebody did start out right, and then they got off course, and maybe they got stranded, and they never made it over to heaven. Sounds like that could be true, couldn't it? Or could it? Hmm, that's the question. (laughs) And since the... This particular, this particular scripture didn't really hold the answer for me. I decided I needed to do some digging. And that means you have to go into context. So this morning's message is more like Bible study than, than, than a message. I kept trying to turn it into message, but it kept turning back into Bible study. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to be patient as we wander through a lot of, um, a lot of stuff. So when you, when you go to study the word, there's something called context. Now, we've all heard that. Sometimes context is only a a verse or two ahead or a verse or two behind. Sometimes the context is the entire book you're looking at. Context is very important. It it has everything to do with interpreting the scripture correctly. So that's what I had to do. I had to go to to context. So I read all of chapter 1, all of chapter 2. And I'm thinking, okay, still not getting it. Going to have to do some digging. I don't see the connection. 
in context. Because it, and we'll read, we'll actually end up reading the entire thing in the first chapter of Timothy. When you talk about context, you have to know who wrote it, who it was written to, why they wrote it. That's the really important part. And you have to know the historical context to interpret correctly. There's no getting around homework. <laughs> if you want to know what a scripture means, there's no getting around doing your homework. Unfortunately, what, what happens so very often is people say, and they do this in the, with the best intention, this is God's love letter to you. You need to read this. That's not exactly true. It wasn't written to you. It was written for you. Does that matter? Yes, it does. <laughs> because the, Timothy is a letter. It wasn't written to those of you sitting here this morning. It was written for you. It makes all the difference in the world. Because this is a, we have to know who's writing. It was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was just that. He was an apostle. He was a church planter. He was in the business of, of raising up churches. He wrote this letter to Timothy. Who's Timothy? Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. Now, does that mean anything to you? <laughs> Probably not. But if you know the historical context, what we're going to read is going to start to make a whole lot more sense. So that's where I'm going to tell you about the historical context. I'm going to start by reading the, uh, the first few verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, by God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. That's really an important part right there, our hope. Biblical hope is not the way we use the word hope in the English language. Oh, I hope so. I maybe yes, maybe no, but I hope so. That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is the confident expectation of good. Jesus Christ is our confident expectation of good. I heard a minister once say it this way. Hope is faith for the future. Now we, say, we talk about the hope of heaven. Now do we mean that maybe yes, maybe no, we're going? No, that's not what we mean. Hope is our confident expectation that we are going to go to heaven. It is faith for the future. Faith says, I have something right now. Hope says, I have something waiting for me in the future. Hope recognizes, that's why they say you have to hope before you have faith. <laughs> you recognize there is something good. Your confident expectation of good leads you to believe you receive when you pray. Hope leads you to faith. That's really important. And then he tells us who he's writing to. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What's interesting about this greeting is this is very common for Paul to greet people with grace to you. Uh, grace and peace to you. This is the only letter, that's what I read anyway, <laughs> that says mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does a pastor need mercy? People. <laughs> and, and that was really an intentional insertion into this letter. 
because we're going to see very quickly why this young pastor, who was about 35 years old at the time, needed the tender mercies of God. The very first thing in my, the very first uh, heading in my in my NIV Bible says, "Warning against false teachers." That's why pastors need mercy, along with grace and peace, is because there are false teachers. There are those who creep in unawares, and they they cause division. And that was exactly what was happening with Timothy. Verse 3 says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Timothy was a dear protege of the Apostle Paul. He went with him on on many, many uh, missionary trips. He was was his aide. And he calls him my, my true son in the faith. This was a very dear and precious relationship. But he got very firm with Timothy. You stay there. Because this was a serious situation. The first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus does not mention any of these heresies that we're going to talk about this morning. So they hadn't yet shown themselves. The division had gotten so severe, and the corruption of the gospel had gotten so out of hand that he says, you have to stay there and take care of this. We can't leave somebody who doesn't have the firm understanding of the gospel of grace in charge. You've got to be there to straighten this out. And it goes on to say, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. The word men there, certain men, is not there in the Greek. And that's important. You'd be surprised why that is important. It says that you may command some not to teach false doctrines. It doesn't say men or women in particular. It's talking, there are obviously both men and women who are teaching false doctrines. That's important because of what comes later. Right here I'm going to give you a, a small picture, I want to paint a picture for you, of, of what his congregation looked like. You see, the, the message of Christianity was a new message. This was revolutionary. People had not been raised in churches. People, the message of the gospel was still new. This was a, a brand new understanding and contrary to everything culturally present at the time. Now, what he had in his congregation were Jews who came to Christ and pagans who came to Christ. They were both raised and entrenched in those specific kinds of doctrines. The Jews were raised with, you have to follow the law. It was all about law keeping. It was all about the rules. It was all about pleasing God by making yourself acceptable. So even though they understood that Jesus was the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, they still believed, well, now that you are made holy, all the more reason to keep the law. All the more reason for you to not fail God in keeping law. So the Judaizers were saying, yes, we accept Jesus as Messiah. But you Gentiles need to be circumcised, and you need to keep the Sabbath, and you need to do this, that, and that, and that, and that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus plus your obedience, plus your performance. That is not the gospel. You're saved by by Christ's sacrifice alone, through faith. It is never of anything we can do in and of ourselves. But they were so entrenched in this lifestyle. From, think about it, from, from the day they, they were circumcised until they were adults, it was all about the law. It was all about making yourself holy. So 
That's their mindset. And also, they believed themselves to be God's chosen people, which meant they were better than all those pagans. <laughs> so you can see how this could maybe make for a very distressful, dis, yeah, stressful situation for the for the pastor. Now about now about the pagan rituals. We're talking about Ephesus. Ephesus had one of the eighth wonders of the world, the temple of the goddess Diana or Artemis. This is really astounding to me. I, but I understand it. You see, these, these pagans who had come to Christ were just as entrenched in their doctrines as the Jews were entrenched in theirs. It was part of their personality, part of their identity. So these, these pagans had all of these very strange ideas, and if you don't understand what they believed, you won't understand what the scripture is talking about. Diana, or Artemis, was a conglomeration of both Greek and Roman mythology. She was supposed to be the goddess of the moon, of fertility, and of pregnancy. Part of her benefits were to provide protection in childbirth. She was supposed to oversee the safety of the woodlands and the forests and bring success to hunting. In fact, when the goddess Diana was first invented, <laughs> she was only the goddess of hunting. But she get, kept get, she kept growing <laughs> in her abilities <laughs> as people began to believe in her and worship her. They began to embellish her abilities, and so she started out as just the goddess of hunting, and she ended up being so much more to her worshippers. Um, she was considered the defendant, the defender, and the advocate of the poor. She was supposedly in charge of who would become royalty next. Sounds like a pretty, pretty important person to be worshiping. <laughs> she was supposed to have fallen from heaven and become the creator of mankind. She vowed that she would never marry a man. Hmm, is this starting to sound a little suspicious? <laughs> In Italy, she was embraced as the queen of witches. The witches were the wise women of healing at that time. They practiced healing arts. Diana was, was said to have created the world out of her own being, creating for herself the world of darkness because she was the god of the moon. And the other part she created was this, the god of the sun, Apollos, which was her brother. So they believed that um, that she had within her all the seeds of what would ever be created in the future. Now this sounds really strange to us, more like it's obviously mythology, but they were entrenched in this. And if you don't believe that people get entrenched in their beliefs, you're wrong. It becomes part of who they see themselves as. Years ago, I was um, going to college and I met a young lady who had just recently become a Christian. And I was talking to her. And she said her pastor was so frustrated. She was a Hispanic young lady. And she said that the Hispanic culture was so superstitious that they would go to church for the, the pastor or the priest to pay, pray for them. And then they would go see the witch doctor down the road and give them money. You see, they were hedging their bet. Well, if God doesn't come through, well, then we can go to this one over here. We'll get all of our bases covered, and then we're, we're sure to have results. 
That's exactly what was happening in Ephesus. You see, all of these believers, they didn't have a church like this where one person did the speaking. But they would gather together and they would worship, and whoever had a word or a tongue or an interpretation and the gifts would flow, and people interpret through what they've been entrenched in. So the Jews heard, yes, Jesus is the land that takes away the sin of the world. All of the more reason for you to follow the rules. <laughs> And the pagans are like, they were taking in information and twisting it with what they already had, just like the Jews were. And then to make matters even harder for this poor pastor, there were some, because they were sharing all of this information, another group arises. So you don't just have the disgruntled Jews and the disgruntled pagans. Now you have something called Gnosticism. It was, they believe, scholars believe this was when it was beginning to form. And Gnosticism is really a mixture of Jewish theology and paganism. They had the concept that, yes, you have received Jesus, you're perfect in your spirit. Whatever is of spirit is good. Now, is that true? Whatever is of spirit is good? No, but that's what the paganism came in and made, turned it to say that. And then they said, well, then whatever is, is of the material world is evil. Everything is evil. Material is evil. Your body is evil. Everything is evil. But these two worlds never touch, so your spirit is just fine and dandy, so you can just sin all you want. doesn't matter what you do doesn't matter how you live. So they completely twisted the scripture to make it fit into the theologies they already had. They weren't willing to receive the instruction of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit tell them the truth. Now, they had a very, very big disadvantage. They didn't have this. <laughs> they didn't have this yet. It was in the process of being written. Now, do you actually need to know all that background? You do. You actually do if you're going to interpret Scripture correctly. I'm going to give you a case in point. Same book, chapter 2, starting with verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in love, faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, have any of you ever stumbled over that one? <laughs> Lots of people have stumbled over that one. And you know why? Because they didn't know the historical background of why it was written. Are women saved, quote unquote, saved by giving birth? Well, we know that's not true. So that can't mean that, <laughs> all right? They're not saved by, by, by giving birth to a child. The word there is sozot. The word is to, to be saved, healed, delivered, protected. Now, what, are, what were the, the attributes of this Diana God? She was supposed to give fertility. She was supposed to give protection in childbirth. She was supposed to bring deliverance from any bad outcome. They were twisting the scripture to, to say all of these things came from Diana 
and not from God. They, had, they, were, they were hedging their bets. Yes, we received Jesus, but we're not going to get totally rid of Diana at the same time. Diana didn't want to have a man over her. She didn't want to be in submission. Adam was formed first. Don't you think that's a very strange thing for the Apostle Paul to say? To tell Timothy, whose mother was a Jew, who raised him in the, in the Jewish synagogue, certainly Timothy already knew Adam came first. So why is he addressing this? Because this goddess Diana's theology was that she came first. Eve was just another name for Diana. And it was Eve that was the author of creation. So you can see it begins to mix and you twist. And you end up without the true gospel. And it is the true gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, not these fake mis mixtures. They believed that Jesus was like one of the, their gods, demigods. They were, he was half God and half man, not fully God and fully man. Now, if he were fully God and fully man, he would have all authority. But they said, since he was in a human form, he must not have been a true God, and therefore doesn't have full authority. So they thought, we can add what we already believe to this. We can hedge our bets. We can have it all. And what they were doing is they were producing a corrupted gospel that had no power at all. You don't add Jesus to what you're already doing. <laughs> That's not the gospel. Um, the other thing here is, why do we know that this part of scripture is misinterpreted? Because of other parts of scripture. The, this would be inconsistent with other parts of scripture if we didn't understand the background. Galatians 3.28 says, So there is neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free, neither is there male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There was no elitism. You see, in both the, the um, Jewish world and the pagan world, men and women were not equal. It is only in Christ that God makes all people equal. That's what he said, because you see, in, in, in this scripture, what he's saying is the Jew is not better than the Greek. You're not more important, you're not more special, you're not more anointed, you're not more holy, you're not more. You're on the same playing ground as the, as the Greek. This was offensive to them. This was an insult, because they always saw themselves as better. He says there is neither free nor bond. The free man always saw himself better than a slave. And of course, neither male nor female. In history, <laughs> men have, in general, thought themselves better and more important than women. Women, for the most part, have always been property. Jesus says, no more. You all have equal standing and equal rights in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has, we started on the same playing ground. We were all sinners in need of a savior. And it is only in this truth that we find that God makes all men equal. This says that women may not teach, but yet in, in Titus 2.4, he says that they, the women, may teach younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, and to love their children. The implication here has always been, well, women must be more gullible. So we're not going to let um, women teach men. We're going to let gullible women teach gullible women to gullible children, because that will be much safer. What? <laughs> 
that makes no sense at all. See, that's not what he's talking about. He's specifically refuting these false ideas. And women must be silent in the church. Acts 21, 9. And the same men had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy in church, not being silent. So we know that this particular scripture, taken out of context, is entirely inconsistent with the rest of scripture. It only makes sense in the light of history. He was talking to these women, these witches. Uh, he, that's who he's talking about. These are part of the false teachers. Now, I'm going to go back over to chapter 1. So that's why we need to understand that when he says certain men, the word men is not in the Greek. It is the word some. You may command some not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. That was part of the problem on both sides, both Jewish and pagan, were these endless genealogies. In the pagan world, they had all these genealogies of angels. In, in Colossians, he talks about angel worship. Came out of this paganistic concept of the goddess Diana. On the other side, the Jews, genealogy was very important to them. What house are you of? Very, that I'm elite. I'm of the house of Judah. I'm of the house of Benjamin. They, they too were lifting themselves up. And when you lift yourself up, you're putting others down, which goes right against Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor bond nor free, nor male nor female. We're all one in Christ. So that was what was, that was about. These provoke controversies, questions, disputings, rather than God's work, which is by faith. I looked up this phrase, rather than God's work, which is by, by faith, and I really like what the Holman Christian Standard, how they interpret it. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. To me, that was a lot clearer. I could get my mind around that a little bit, a little bit better. Because when you say God's work, in, in what context is that? But this made it very clear that he's talking about God's redemptive plan. And also, your per God's personal plan for you. you. God's plan for you will only come to pass in your life as you believe. So it matters if you understand what the gospel really is and what we're supposed to truly believe. The goal of this command is love. You see, with all of this elitism, I'm better than you, I'm more important, I'm more spiritual. With all of this elitism, where does love go? Right out the door. Love is the foundation of the gospel. <laughs> Jesus said, it is by our love that they will know that we are of Christ. It is not, a, not our gifts, it is not our callings, it is, it is not our works, it is our love that declares to all of the world that God is real and the gospel is true. And all of these false teachings were, were crowding out the love of Jesus Christ. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is going to come up again. All of these things are only given to believers through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no clear conscience unless you understand the blood of Jesus Christ has taken away all of your sin. It is only when we understand that truth that I don't ever have to pay for my mistakes, that God is never angry, God is never mad. His wrath has already been poured out. 
that I can have a clear conscience before God. The gospel is God is not mad. <laughs> He's not even in a, in, a, in a bad mood. He's never angry with me, never angry with me, even when I mess up. Because you know what anger is? It's punishment. That's why he's never going to be angry. You, all of our sins have already been paid for. Now, does he like it when we mess up, when we choose to be disobedient, when we choose to walk in a way he doesn't want us to walk? Well, of course not. It breaks his heart. He wants only what is good for us. He only wants us to operate by faith so we can have everything that Jesus bought and paid for. So no, he doesn't want us to walk in, in sin. It breaks his heart. But all of these things only come by understanding the true gospel. A good conscience, a pure heart before God, and a sincere faith. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our heart and makes it pure. Because of that, we have a clean conscience before God. And because of that clean conscience, we have a sincere faith. It's not a hedging your bet faith. <laughs> Some have wandered away from these. From what? From the, the power of the gospel. The pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith. Sincere faith. They have, they're hedging their bets. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about and what they so confidently affirm. Scholars believe this particular here is talking about the Gnosticism, the Jewish believers who are getting into the paganism. They're trying to bring the law and twist it and, and make it applicable to the Christian life. And they had no idea what they were talking about. And he goes on to say, we know the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous. And what does he mean by that? The law's purpose is to show us how much big of a failure we are apart from Christ. That there is no way we could ever be perfect or good enough to make up for our sin, which is a very common thought process in, in the world today. If I'm, just, if I'm more good than I am bad, God will let me into heaven. It's about what I do. So he says the law is good. The law will show us we fall short of God's perfection and glory. That's what it's meant to do. So he says, it's not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers, the rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders, for liars, for perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So he says, the, the word is very clear, who needs the law? If you're running, and that's, that's the thing. In that day, all of those people <laughs> in the pagan religions, sacrificing people was not a big deal. If you were raised with the, the, the if you're entrenched, and it's okay to offer a child on an altar to get a favor from a god. Do you need to know that the one true God disapproves? Well, of course you do. So it's important that we understand what God accepts as appropriate behavior, appropriate worship. We don't get rid of the law, but we're not, we're not bound to the law to perform it. It is not the way we make ourselves acceptable to God. But the Holy Spirit, if you, need, if you have an, a question, is something right or wrong, God? Can you find it in here? Absolutely. 
Yeah, we don't throw the law away and say it's useless. No, the law is perfect and good. It, for when you use it appropriately. You have to know how to use it appropriately. These people did not. Then, right here, the Apostle Paul kind of takes a turn because of this last statement. Because he says, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, which means healthy teaching, healthy teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel. And then Paul, I think, is all happy <laughs> when he thinks about the glorious gospel, how amazing God's love and grace is, how we are freely and, and completely accepted in the beloved. Because then he, start, then he goes right into thanksgiving. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. There's that word. Mercy. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me super abundantly, is that word. They only translated it in the NIV as abundantly, but it's super abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So not only does, does God pour out his grace abundantly, but he gives us the faith that we need. He gives us the love that we need, the, love, the faith to operate and the love to operate the faith by. He gives us everything. Everything is of him. Nothing is of, of, is of us. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying. Now what I think is really interesting is before he goes into this Thanksgiving, this would be a perfect opportunity to slap some people around. Don't you think? If people are misbehaving, shouldn't the Apostle Paul go, throw them out? <laughs> but instead, he goes into this wonderful praise of the gospel, of who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't try to throw people away, but he exalts the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And by exalting the truth of who Jesus is and what Christ has done, that will refute the false teachings. That's what he's doing here. And, he, and what I love is he goes into this, he says, here is a trustworthy saying which deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Period. He came into the world to save sinners. There isn't any other kind of people to save. He says, and of whom I am the worst. Now, what he's not saying is that he's still a sinner. That's not what he's saying. As he goes on, he says, but for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. He's talking, he's talking about his regret of persecuting the church. I have a dear, dear friend who was Pentecostal and very straight-laced, very legalistic, because that's what she was entrenched in. That's what she was raised in. That's how she understood the gospel. And we started ministering to her the word of grace, the gospel of grace. And she would sit in my living room crying. I told so many people the wrong thing. I told them God was mad at their sin. I told them God didn't love them if they misbehaved. I can't go back and undo those things. Her heart was full of regret. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul here. That's why he says, look at me. 
I persecuted the church. I put men in, I dragged them off to prison. I had them put to death for the sake of the gospel. His heart was broken that he had been an instrument to do such a horrible thing. He, but he's saying, look, if God can save me, someone who persecuted him, how bad do you have to be for God to save you? He's saying, look, you can't get any worse than me. There's no one more offensive in the natural to, to the Lord that should be than me. I'm the one that persecuted him. He says, if the worst, and that was his own opinion of himself, this is the worst thing you could possibly do. But nothing, nothing escapes the grace of God. No sin is exempt, no matter how bad. And that's what he wants these false teachers to understand. We don't want to throw you away. We don't want to, we want to throw your teaching away. We don't want to throw you away. We want you to understand the true gospel, the gospel of grace. And that's why he said, I love this, the unlimited patience of God. <laughs> you may not have it all right. Guess what? None of us have it all right. We're all on this journey of learning more and more of who Jesus is and the power and the truth of the gospel. None of us is going to have it perfect. But as we grow in our understanding, we will know him more and more. And that's the goal, to know this Jesus, to know by experience this grace. And he's still, even in this praise, even in giving God all this glory, he is still refuting false teachings. He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. There is no other. It's Christ alone. None else. You can't hedge your bets. You can't. You're diluting your faith. You're destroying your faith. Hmm. Where are we going? To shipwreck. That's where we're going. To the only God. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight. What is the good fight? What is the good fight? Holding on to faith. Faith righteousness. Faith in Christ alone. No more false teachings, no more adding to what the gospel says. Trying to take whatever we were grew up with and bring it into our understanding of the gospel. Does this happen today? Oh yeah. All the time. All the time. You, your heart has recorded everything that has ever happened to you in your entire life. Good, bad, and ugly. Right and wrong. My heart was convinced that God didn't heal every time. The, the, the church God first put me in when I came to the knowledge of Christ was a little holiness church, and they did not believe that healing was in the atonement. And so I was taught, maybe God does, maybe God doesn't. You know? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense when you read the scriptures. The scriptures are very clear. Healing is in the atonement. And God says, if you believe when you, when you pray that you receive, you, he has already given it. It's already yours. You can't get away from the truth. But what about those things that happen in 
your life and they become entrenched. I had seen a documentary of the early church, uh, the Azusa Street Revivals, those kinds of things. And they had the audacity to tell people, come to church, God will heal you. And I was like, you can't tell people that. What if he doesn't? You see, I didn't understand that it was already accomplished. It was already available. The problem with us is our heart didn't believe. My heart didn't believe. I was offended at that. You can't tell people God always gives healing. Why? Because we don't always see it? Does God always forgive when we ask? Yes. Why? God's not doling out forgiveness. Well, you deserve it and you don't. Healing is the same way. It's not you deserve it and you don't. He says, by my stripes, you were healed. The tricky part is convincing our heart. It is that entrenched stuff that gets in us that dilutes our faith. So holding on to faith in the blood of Jesus Christ alone that's the good fight. And do you have to fight to do that? Let me tell you, you do. You do have to fight to stay in faith in Christ alone. It is so easy because of this world and the way the world operates to think that God's going to bless us when we do good and punish us when we do wrong. Because that is the world system we live in. But that is not the God who is our Father. He is altogether lovely and altogether different. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. And we already talked about that. That's the fight. That when I do sin, I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to make up for it. I don't have to do something for God to take me back. He never left. The word says if you join yourself to a harlot, do you not know that you have joined Christ to a harlot? When we sin, Christ does not leave. And he's not angry. And he's not disappointed. And he's not mad. He's calling us to the cross. The victory we seek in every situation is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the good fight of faith. And he says, some have rejected these. They've rejected that they can have that clean conscience. They think they have to earn it. They think they have to hedge their bets. They think that God is untrustworthy and un, unreliable. And he says, and these, these are two specifically, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan not to be taught not to blaspheme. The Apostle Paul talks about this in another scripture as well. Many people go, what is that? It's actually just a church discipline. It was Paul saying, I am now... I have prayed, I have interceded, I have done everything on, on their behalf to try to get them to listen to the Holy Spirit. They are rejecting the truth of the gospel. I have interceded, I have interceded, and I have interceded, and they have, not, they have not listened. We have no choice but to stop interceding for them. The hope was that they would start reap, sowing and reaping. You see, your, your prayers are amazingly powerful. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So if someone you know is wandering, 
and you're praying for them, they are under your protection, the protection of God. God is hearing your prayers. Your prayers are powerful and effective. But if you withhold those prayers, you withhold that protection, then they're going to start reaping what they sow. This is never something you should decide to do, trying to get somebody else to be what you want them to be. Never. I've been a, in a, Christian, a Christian for a really long time now. <laughs> and in all of these years, I, I've been an intercessor. And there was this one gentleman who was like this that we were talking about. The church I was in got new leadership. And the deacons didn't like it. And they started being divisive. Now, I wasn't in on all that was going on. I, was I knew there was a problem, so I was just interceding for this, for this particular gentleman. Interceding for his family, interceding, interceding, all the time interceding. And one day the Holy Spirit says, stop. Stop praying for him. I was like, oh, that can't be God. So I kept praying. The Holy Spirit kept arresting me, going, you need to stop. <laughs> Why? Because my, my prayers are powerful and effective. He says, you're now not working with me. Now you're working against me. And I was like, I don't understand this. I had never been taught this. So I went to my pastor. I said, what is this? Because the Lord didn't say to me, hand him over to Satan. The Lord said, stop interceding for him. You're protecting him. Stop it. <laughs> and my, my pastor at the time said, oh, that's, that's definitely the, the devil. Oh, it's a sin to stop, the pray, stop praying for somebody. I was like, it is? Okay. But I'm pretty sure it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay. And so we had a series of sermons of why it was evil to stop praying for people. <laughs> and I said, Lord, I don't understand. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to help me understand this. You have to also vindicate me, because now my pastor thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> and we had a missionary come from uh, overseas. And guess what he taught on? Handing someone over to Satan to stop interceding for them so that, not because it's pun not for punishment, but so that they would start to reap some of what they had sowed and come to their senses and start listening to the Holy Spirit and start receiving all that God has for them. Because when they're outside of God's will, they are not walking in all that God has for them. This is about love, not about manipulation. This is about helping somebody only by the direction of the Holy Spirit. This was so strong in me that when we would gather for intercessory prayer, they would ask me to pray for this man. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I, would, I would start, Lord, please uh, pray for his wife and his children and his business and his health. No, they can't pray that. Oh, Lord, help, help. <laughs> what ended up happening is that he left our church. And he went to another church. And guess what he started doing there? Causing division. And it was about 18 months. And every once in a while I would try. Okay, pray for him now? Okay, no, okay, okay. Then one day, all of a sudden, during intercessory prayer, he came to my mind, so I started praying for him. And then I realized, oh, you didn't stop me. What's happened? Something's happened. It was not too long after that that he came back to our church 
and apologized and made everything right. That's what God had in mind the whole time. It's always about unity and love in the body of Christ. It's always about God being everything all the time. Oh my goodness, I preach as long as my husband. <laughs> I'm going to close in Hebrews 6, beginning with verse 17. It says this, People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and put an end to an all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, one, the promise is unchangeable, and God is unchangeable. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, you who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope, Jesus Christ, as the anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ, has entered on our behalf. The scripture says he is our hope. He is our anchor. How do we avoid shipwreck? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Our faith is not always perfect. We don't understand necessarily everything perfectly. But that's why we grow in our faith. We grow in our understanding. A few years ago, we were singing the this, this song Cornerstone at church one morning at our other church. And it was the words of the song. I began to be able to see it with the, the eyes of my heart. In, in Christ alone, cornerstone, the weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord. Lord of all. Those who are right and those who are wrong, He is Lord of all. He loves them all. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. What is that anchor? I went home and I, I wrote this out. While worshiping in church, the light of my father's love shined into my understanding. And I saw, in a moment, a wonderful picture of how the finished work of my Lord Jesus is truly the anchor of my soul. What is an anchor? It is something that has the ability to ta attach a vessel or a person to that which is immovable and unchangeable. An anchor is that which, is that which keeps you from being able to leave the place to which you are anchored. An anchor is used especially in storms when, when winds attempt to drive a ship into a dangerous direction. When the winds of doctrine and unbelief, contrary to the truth, arise, my anchor, his blood, and his righteousness is the only thing strong enough to keep me steady and secure. 
I have no reason to fear that my faults and my failings have disqualified me to be in the presence behind the veil. Because it is only His blood and righteousness in which I put my trust. Do you know when people need anchors? It is when they know that there is nothing they can do to save themselves. When we realize that not only can we not save ourselves, but we cannot keep ourselves saved, that is when we cast all our trust into the anchor of the Lord's finished work and His all-sufficient sacrifice. When a ship is in the midst of a storm and it becomes apparent to the captain of the ship that he is no longer able to control what happens to the ship, it is then he will have the anchor cast into the sea. But once the ship becomes stable and those on the ship realize that they are safe, what is the result? Rest. Peace. Relief. The same is true when we realize that our anchor holds within the veil. When we realize that, when I realize that I am safe, not because of anything that I have done, my being safe is altogether dependent on Him. Then I am free to rest. Then I am free to rejoice. Then I am free to live in peace. So what is the anchor that is behind or within the veil of the holies of holies of heaven? It is the mercy seat on which Jesus presented his blood and his life as an atonement and a ransom for all sin, for all people, for all time. It is Jesus' blood that is the anchor within the veil. Our Heavenly Father tore the veil to show us that the only way into the Holy of Holies was not only open, but permanently open. And not just open, but secured. His blood and righteousness and only His blood and righteousness anchors us to Him. He is the Holy of Holies, and I never leave His presence, because the anchor of His blood holds me there. Even if I don't understand it, my anchor holds me steady. I don't hold me steady. I can't keep myself righteous, but He can, and He does. And I rest in His ability to hold me and to keep me righteous. As the song says, I rest on His unchanging grace. Amen? Amen. So we don't need to fear shipwreck. We don't need to be afraid that we'll get off course. Now, sometimes we do get off course. But you see, He is the anchor that pulls us back. He is the anchor that takes care of us. He is the one, when we look to Him, He makes us steady and sure. Whatever storm comes into your life, your anchor holds. Remain steady in His goodness, in His grace, in His provision. He's already answered. He's already provided. We don't ever have to be afraid that we'll lose our way and get stranded and not make it. He is too faithful to leave us stranded. Amen?